Thank you again, worship team, for leading us in those songs, reminding us of uh, the treasure of Christ that we have. And uh, that is a, that's a wonderful joy for us to think of, even as we come for a passage that uh, talks about for us uh, how the, the tendency that all of us have uh, to boast in, in our riches. Uh, and even as we look at this, come to this passage, I've, I've just been... Uh, uh, I've just been if I could say, uncomfortable coming to this passage this morning. Uh, and I tell you, it's uncomfortable because uh, I think about how when James wrote this letter, he wrote it to uh, those who are uh, predominantly poor. Uh, but then here, uh, as we listen to this word this morning, uh, we listen to it as a congregation that is predominantly rich, uh, well off, at least. You know, we all have means to provide for ourselves. And so it, it hits uh, even... As a, it serves as a rebuke of the rich, and so uh, you know it's it's easy to kind of think, well, that's, this is talking to to Bill Gates or Larry Ellison, you know, those people, not us. Uh, but it does speak to us this morning, so I pray that we come this come to the word with a, a same kind of a uh, same heart, a same humble attitude to just hear what God has to say. James five one through six. You have hopefully turned your Bibles there by now. If not, let's uh, you can look up on the screen as well. Let's hear the word of God. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Father, we come to your passage, this passage that addresses the rich. And Lord, we, we oftentimes think, well, we're not rich. Uh, you know, that's, other people are rich. But yet, Lord, as we think about ourselves and, and where we are, as a, particularly as a church as a whole, uh, we, in comparison to the rest of the world, are rich. And Lord, we, we've heard and read just the, this stinging condemnation of those who boast in their riches. And Father, we pray that even as we come to it, that you would give us wisdom to see that much of the attitudes that are reflected in the rich are often felt by us as well. Attention, Father, that we feel even as we know that we ought not to boast in riches, but yet our heart often does. Lord, cause us to hear what your word has to say. Let your word go forth and speak to each one of us exactly that which you want us to hear. 
Lord, may it also just go forth and be an encouragement to those among us who uh, are without means. Father, we pray that you would be glorified now through the preaching of your word. Be our teacher, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine uh, one of the many uh, young tech com millionaires that are in our city these days, you know, maybe some of you are right here with us, came up to you and uh, asked you, excuse me, I, I know you go to San Francisco Bible Church. What shall I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? How would you answer that young tech com millionaire? Would you say, well... You need to obey all the commandments. And then, and then, on top of that, you would say, and then go and sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and then go follow Jesus. Um, probably not very many of us would have said that, would say that to such a person. We'd probably give a more traditional gospel presentation of how salvation is not by works, not by doing obedience, obeying the commands, not by uh, giving to the poor, but our salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we would say, probably, most majority of us. But as many of you know, if you kind of heard the words that we just explained, and if you're familiar with your New Testament, you would know that Jesus answered in this very same way, or in the way that I just earlier explained. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 26, Jesus responded to a rich young ruler who came to him and asked about how he could have salvation. Now, Jesus, in his wisdom, answered the question in that particular way. Not because Jesus was teaching a, a work salvation that we're saved by doing good things, but Jesus asked him or shared with, challenged him in these areas because Jesus knew the heart of all men, and he knew the heart of that rich young ruler. He knew for that rich young ruler that what ruled in his heart was his riches, his wealth. And so Jesus, by challenging him with those questions, challenged him to submit himself to the Lordship of Christ, to submit his riches to the Lordship of Christ and to follow him. Jesus knows each of our hearts. And when he came and particularly met us and brought us the same faith, he challenged each of us to turn away from what it was the idol of our hearts, what it was what we were worshiping in, whether ourselves, whether our possessions, whether it's our, our own uh, uh, character or, or, or our, family, our heritage, our career, our families. And he called us to submit them all to the Lord Jesus Christ, to submit ourselves unto him and to follow him. For the rich young ruler, his problem, of course, was riches. He served his riches. And when Jesus challenged him to sell his possessions and go give it to the poor and then follow Jesus, that rich young ruler could not. He left. And the scripture says he walked away saddened because he was one who had much riches. He wasn't ready. He wasn't willing. We don't know. Maybe he came to the Lord later. But at that moment, he was not ready to give up his riches, to submit them to Christ. Jesus would teach 
or had taught even earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 6, 24, this truth that you cannot serve God and wealth. You can't serve God and riches. You can't pursue God and pursue riches, both equally the same. You will either use your wealth to serve God or you will use your God to serve wealth. Yet we want to make sure and add that Jesus does not condemn wealth itself. It is just one of the many things that we can put before Christ. It's becomes, it can become an idol to us, but yet Jesus does not condemn being rich, being wealthy. Jesus had wealthy people who followed him. Uh, there were particularly the, the tax gatherers who followed him, Matthew, Zacchaeus. Uh, there was Joseph of Arimathea, some of the religious establishment that were wealthy as well. But what we learn from Jesus and the apostles is that being rich is not a sin, but rather we do sin when our trust and our prideful boasting is in our riches instead of God. Now, I know this passage, if we talk about, we entitled it boasting in our riches. Faith does not boast in our riches. And the word, the text does not have the word boast. It had it in the, in the previous text, 4, 13 through 17. But this whole passage exudes an idea of boastfulness. When we talk about boastfulness, it's not like you say, well, I boast in my riches. But it's really talking about the, the pride, the things that we feel joy, the things that we exult in about ourselves. It's, it's kind of like, you know, the best thing to explain it, it's, it's like when you get that new shiny thing, whatever it is that you like. You know, for me, it's tech. I love tech. You know, some of it's clothes, some of it's, you know, accessories, some of it's just, you know, new hairdo or, you know, some, you know, I don't know, something nice, car, house. And the tendency is to feel good about that, right? And, that, and I, we get that. God gives us all things to enjoy. But somehow we start thinking that the tendency is we think that we're actually a better person because of that. Like, I'm better because I have a nice house. I'm somehow better because I drive this, I was watching this guy drive a Ferrari, into, you know, on 19 today. As I came, I said, wow. You know, my tendency was to think that guy might be a better man than me, right? Because he has a Ferrari, and I, well, I, I drive it at XB. That's pretty good. No. <laughs> but anyways, you know, this, it's this tendency, and we tend to look to people who have more as being better. Though, we ask, does that, that make sense? We say, oh, that doesn't make sense. But we treat people that way. That's how human nature is. Anyways, I move on. Today's passage reproves those of us who boast in riches, who boast in, and feel pride about our, our, the, the, the riches in our life. Today's passage, uh, it's really, is a, it's like if, you, if we heard the scriptures, it's very kind of like a, it's a very uh, quick and abrupt uh, uh, reproof. It's just kind of one verse after another, boom, 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 boom. And it's very, you can kind of sense that James is very, um, he's almost kind of worked himself up to reprove those who are wealthy because of the abuses that, that they were doing, they were committing against uh, the poor among them. And it's a challenge. It is a reproof. It challenges those rich to examine their lives to see whether they are boasting in their riches or not. It serves the same purpose for us, to challenge us. Do we boast in our riches or not? Like the rich young ruler, though, our riches do have a way of clouding our ability to see the scriptures. It does have effect, effect, affects us to, makes it difficult to obey Jesus Christ. We want to justify ourselves in how we use our money. 
We don't like someone telling us how to use our money. And even when it is the Son of God. So we come to this word again, and just as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, I hope with a, just a humble heart, letting ourselves hear. And you might say, well, I don't do that. I, you go through a check, I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. But uh, I was thinking that, you know, we could, I could do that, and I could walk away Scott clear, and I'm clear. I'm good. I'm with God. But I, I challenge us, and what I was kind of convicted of this week, just is there are attitudes here that maybe we might not commit the same actions, but there are attitudes here that are, that are close to our hearts. And uh, that if we could look to our own hearts and, and put those kind of attitudes away, I think we'd grow in wisdom with regards to our riches. So uh, as, a bit of, as a bit of context, this passage is part two of James' challenge to the rich. We already saw part one in chapter four, verse 13 to 17, and we see part two here in verses one through six of chapter five. Uh, the, the majority of James' recipients were believers of humble circumstances. They were poor. Uh, in fact, the early church, the majority of them were uh, poor and were slaves and uh, were people of low so- social standing, even as we read in the scriptures, the scripture reading this morning. But there were also some rich among the believers. There were a few. Uh, chapter 1, verse 9 to 10 even talks, it refers to some of those rich. In here, 4 through 13 to 17, James began by challenging those who boast in their plans. That sometimes when we have means, we, we can make plans. We can actually uh, bring, kind of try to fulfill them. And we tend to boast in those things. And he calls them out for it. Now in chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, James challenges us, or challenges those who boast in their riches. In contrast to the previous verses, these, verses, these words are harsher. They are uh, more condemnatory. In 4, 13 to 17, there seems to be a little hope of even repentance. There's a calling in repentance. But here in 5, 1 to 6, there seems like it's just all about judgment. It's pretty strong. Many commentators believe that James here is addressing the unbelieving rich that are among them in their midst. And though they may be professing faith in Jesus Christ, that by their actions, particularly the actions that we see in this particular this passage, they're really reflecting that they don't have a genuine faith in Christ. Our theme, James, is all about faith that works. And when you look at these rich, you realize their faith, though it may be in Jesus Christ, would express me in faith, but by their works, by the things they do, it really shows that they don't have the heart of Christ. They have not submitted their riches to Christ. They seem to be serving wealth instead of God. And James says very clearly, and the, the, really the primary point of this is that for those who boast in the riches, judgment is coming. It's coming upon you, uh, James says. As an outline, then, we're going to take a look at this uh, pretty harsh con- uh, judgment. It almost has a flavor of uh, Old Testament uh, prophetic judgment. You know, you kind of read some of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you know, so any of the minor prophets, and you kind of hear them, God's judgment upon different peoples, different nations, judges of the priests, judges of the rich, judges uh, all the, you know, different Israel. And this has that kind of feel. But I'm going to look today at two major reasons that God's judgment is coming upon those who boast in their riches. And I think the kind of the main primary application is that if judgment is coming, we better do something to avoid it. I think that's kind of the application we're going to get out of this, right? Let's do, if we are doing something that is deserving of judgment, and we, then we better respond in the right way and not and, and turn away from what we're doing. All right, so let's look at number one. 
point number one, uh, reason number one that God's judgment is coming. If you boast in your riches, God's judgment is coming because, number one, you have sought security in your riches. You have sought security in your riches. You are trusting, you're, you're putting all your eggs in your riches, you know? This is what you find secure. This is what makes you feel safe. This is what makes you feel secure. This is what you make you say, when it's, it's all okay because I look at my bank book and I say, wow, I've got mm, lots of zeros behind my number, that first number. James begins here in verse 1 with your coming judgment, your coming judgment. He says in verse 1, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Pretty harsh words, you know, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. This is a warning of impending judgment for the rich. The rich have been mentioned several times in our letter. We already mentioned one, chapter 1, verse 10 through 11, how the rich are to glory in his humiliation, that when we're, though we're rich and we go through trials, that's a, we should boast in God. We should praise God for that because it teaches us that even though we're rich, we can't even affect, the, we can't even avoid trials. Trials are a way to show us that your, your wealth cannot buy you out of all your troubles. In chapter 2, verse 1 to 6, the rich are those who, who te- whom, to whom we tend to show partiality to in our, in our gatherings, in our assembly. And that's just how we are even today. We tend to look up to the rich. We don't say, well, I don't want to be like that homeless guy over there. No, we want to be like the rich person. We say, well, I want to be like, I want to be like that, that, uh, that, uh, that wealthy woman on television or, or that wealthy man that I see. I want to be like them. We kind of respect them more because they're wealthy. Yet, in chapter 2, verse 6, James tells us that the rich were the ones who oppressed believers and actually dragged them into court. Why do we want to be like them when they actually oppress our fellow believers? And then in chapter 4, verse 13 to 17, the rich are those who boast in their plans. The rich specifically refer to those wealthy professing believers here who may or may not possess genuine saving faith. James calls the rich to weep. He commands them to weep, in fact, in this text. This uh, we. This verb, weep, was found early in chapter 4, verse 9, where James says, Be miserable and mourn and weep. There it was used as a call to repentance. When we, repentance is characterized by sorrow. When we're repentant and we, about our sins, we should have, this should affect our sorrow. Even as, and there it was with regards to pursuing selfish pleasures. But here, it serves a similar purpose, calling the rich to repent in the face of impending judgment, to repent over their boasting in their riches, their glory in their riches, their exult, their confidence in their riches. The call to weep is further modified by a second verb. This word in the NAS, it's howl or wail is another word could be translated. So literally the command is to weep by howling or by wailing. This latter verb, howl, is used exclusively in, this, in the Greek Old Testament for when the Israelites would lament over the disasters that were come up, had come upon them because the Lord judged them for their apostasy and adultery. Isaiah 13, 6 is an example of that. It is an expression of pain uh, that, they are, that they feel 
And it's understandable because here the, the occasion of their weeping, the why they should weep and howl is because your miseries, James says, are coming upon you. The wording here conveys the impending judgment, this impending judgment that's coming. It's, it's, it is coming. It's our, these miseries are coming. It's, this judgment is often called the day of the Lord. We call it the eschatological, the, the end time day of the Lord, the day when the Lord comes back and he establishes kingdom and he judges over all those who oppose him. The mention later of last days in verse 3 and the day of slaughter in verse 5 confirm this interpretation of this day of the Lord judgment. It's, it's going to come. It's imminent in its coming. For those rich who boast in their riches and not in the Lord, James says, weep and wail because your judgment is coming. Your judgment's coming. It is a certain judgment, James says. And as an indication of the imminence of their miseries, that how soon this judgment's coming. And maybe they may not feel it right now. Right now, they got all their stuff, and they're happy about their stuff. But James says, your miseries are coming. And he tells and describes it in verse 2 to 3 by your fading riches. The miseries that you're going to experience at the judgment are already, you have a foretaste of it already, whether you realize or not, because your riches are starting to fade. The things that you hold dear to are perishing right before you, and you don't know it. They're fading away. Verse 2 and 3, we read, Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you. It will consume you like flesh, your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Notice here in here, verse 2 3, this kind of a past, these verbs are in the past tense. You expect them to be in the future tense if it's a judgment. We think, your riches will rot. Your garments will become moth-eaten. Your gold will, but he uses a past tense. To kind of, it's a prophetic kind of, in the day of the Lord, in the day of judgment, their riches, all these things that they're, they are, they will be rotted and moth-eaten and rusted and perish. But they're already, they're already, but they are already being, fading away as well. Now we can get a sense of these verses and it's, verses, verse three kind of gives gives us a clear sense of what it actually means. Sometimes we ask what it says and then what it means. We can see what it says, but what does it mean? The rich, we see, have stored up, verse, at the end of verse 3, have stored up treasure for themselves, including riches, garments, gold, and silver. And that's, that's why they're rich, right? Because they have a lot. They've stored up a lot of this for themselves. But this verb, store up treasure, from which we get our English word thesaurus, a treasury of words is it's often how it's, we think of thesauruses. Is used by Jesus in Matthew chapter six, verse nineteen to twenty-one. Well, and they're familiar words. They sound exact. James is just using the words of Jesus. He says, do, "Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven." where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is reminding us of the foolishness of finding security in our earthly treasures. For our earthly treasures are destroyed by moth and rust. They are stolen easily by thieves who break in. And James takes Jesus' words, our Lord's words, and he uses those ideas here in our passage of 
verses 2 and 3. And so he points out the fact that the treasures that the rich were storing up, all those things, the, the clothes, the, the treasures, the, the, uh, their, their gold and silver, he says they're already fading. They've already, it's, it's an, even, it's already, it has already perished. And their riches in the sense of food have rotted. Their garments have been eaten by moth. Their gold and silver have rusted. Now, even the, and some commentators are, you know, would say, well, gold and silver, they don't rust. Well, that's, you know, that's, pure gold and silver do not rust. But in those days, gold and silver uh, possessed many impurities, and they weren't that pure, so they were susceptible to be oxidation and, and tarnishing. But the point here is that man tends to think that there is security in the abundance of our possessions. And that's just not man, that's us. I, I, you know, we all tend to find security when we look at our, well, I used to say bank book, but who has a bank book these days? Uh, when we look at our mint.com and we look at our total, we say, oh, look, my gross, oh, it's good. I can see a trajectory of increasing numbers. Uh, oh, I'm secure. That's, that's how we feel, okay? That's, we who are earthly creatures find security in our earthly possessions, in the abundance of it. The more we have, the more secure we feel because we think that money will then be able to resolve our, all our, well, for the most part, will resolve all our problems. Yes, there is that short-term ability to buy the things that we need. There's never, say, oh, man, I need that. Oh, I can't afford it. No, most of us say, oh, I need that. I'm going to go out of Costco and buy it. I'm going to buy 10 of them, too. Because <laughs> uh, it's, it's a good deal. But our money has zero long-term security. Zero. Zero. Nothing. It can do nothing for the life to come. We're rich for this world, perhaps, but it has no security for the life to come. In fact, James says here, are those things we find security in are already perishing. They're already fading away. The rich have stored up for themselves all these earthly treasures, but they have sought, and they have sought security in the abundance of these riches. But sadly, those riches are they're, they're, they're fading away. They ultimately provide no security whatsoever. Even, you know, the, uh, you know, everything is essentially falling apart. And you don't even got to look at your treasures to do that. You can see our, our bodies are falling apart already. Why would anyone find security in something that is fleeting and fading? Yet that's what you do when you put your trust in riches. I want to make, again, real clear that the problem is not having earthly possessions. God gives us this earth for us to enjoy. God gives us this world that we might work it to receive food, to receive uh, in, in our the various human world economies money to purchase things. The problem is, and what we want to avoid, is when we naturally tend to feel and find our security in our earthly possessions and the gaining of it. It's an illusion, though. It's a fool's gold. It is false security. Jesus teaches us that true security comes from having treasure stored in heaven. That treasure begins with the greatest treasure of all, the pearl of great price, and that's Jesus himself. What's more, James says that the decay of your earthly treasure serves as a witness against you, will consume your flesh like fire, Jesus, James says. 
This is, these words are images of severe judgment. You can just imagine your riches consuming your flesh like fire. That's, that sounds like the judgment of hell. See, God gives us riches for us to enjoy and to use for his glory. And when we, but yet, when we merely save it up for our own security, its decay serves as a witness that our trust was in our riches and not the Lord. Our, our, our trust was actually a foolish trust. But rather, we ought to be trusting the Lord. And when we trust the Lord, we'll use our riches then that he gives us to help others, to further his kingdom. And James' final phrase in verse 3 says, It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. It tells us that the judgment for storing up treasures on earth is coming soon. The, la- the New Testament authors often refer to this phrase, the last days. It's the last days. It's, it's, in fact, the last days are the days that we live in. It's the days between the Christ's first coming, when he came and died on the cross and then rose from the grave on the third day, but it's, and then the second coming when he will return. It is this time that ex- where, men are, where mankind is expecting the second coming of Christ. We expect it. We don't say, when is it going to happen? Well, the Bible teaches that it can, it'll happen soon. We don't know when, but we all, the Bible always says it's happening soon. It's coming soon, at any moment. And at that moment when Christ returns, it will not only usher in the establishment of Christ's kingdom, but it will also begin Christ's period of judgment of all those who oppose him. So knowing that Christ can return at any moment should motivate us to stop storing up treasure on earth, Right? Just like knowing your parents are going to come home means you're going to stop goofing off and clean up your room and start off to play, stop playing video games because if they come home and find you doing those things, you'll be in trouble. How much more foolish it is if we keep storing up treasures on earth knowing that the Christ, our Lord, is coming again soon. Those who continue, though, to do so, even knowing the imminence of Christ's return, well, that just reveals where your heart is at. It reveals that you love your treasures more than Christ. It's no wonder that James then says to those of you who would love your riches more than Christ to weep and howl because your miseries are coming. It's real judgment. They seek security in that which is insecure all while judgment nears. James teaches us a second reason, a second major reason that God's judgment is coming upon those who boast in their riches. God's judgment is coming because you have not shared your riches. You have not shared your riches. One of the things that parents uh, teach their children as they grow up is to, is to share, right? Uh, we had... Uh, Steve and Joyce Louie over at our house and, you know, with their daughter, Carissa. And one of the things, you know, when her, Carissa and Kiara were playing together, it was uh, both, of, both sets of parents were trying to teach the children to share in the toys, right? To share, taking turns to play and things like that. It's very na- natural and normal that we teach our kids to share. Sharing toys, sharing food, sharing activities with others. We teach our children to share because sharing is an act of kindness. We want to raise children who are kind, we don't want to raise children who would just say, well, just go out there and get all that you can get and don't share with nobody else. Uh, they wouldn't have no friends in this world, for sure, much less they would be miserable. But we want them to be kind and to be able to make friends with the things that God gives them. 
But sharing is not just something that we teach the children. It's sharing that is sharing is something uh, is sharing is something that all of us ought to do. But God's word specifically tells us. In fact, God's word requires of us who are rich to share. See, the Bible teaches that the rich have a responsibility. And those of us that are, have means have a responsibility before God to share our riches with those who are in need, who lack. It's why traditionally Christians have been known to be given, to be helping to have ministries that help the poor, to provide food, provide clothing. We just have our we talked in our announcement today, we talked about having a clothing drive for our men. Because most of us have an abundance of clothing in my, I know I have abundance of clothing in my, uh, um, my closet. We are to share. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, even in the, in the law of God, God taught Moses to teach Israel this word, these words, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. And that sounds familiar. Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and poor in your land. The rich have a responsibility for, to the poor to help your brother, the one in need, the one who is poor. Jesus would reiterate this expectation to give to the poor in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verses 2 to 3. And he says, it's, now, if you give, he would say, when you give, when you give. It's an expectation that you would do this. When you give alms to the poor, not just when you give to the church, though that's a, maybe a part of that, but when you give to the poor. We, you know, we tend to feel, you know, when we get to look at those, the Sermon on the Mount, we think when we get that, when you fast, and we say, oh, I haven't fasted in a while. But when you give, you ask yourself, when was the last time you gave to the poor? Those of you that have means. Also, James earlier in chapter 2, verse 15 to 16, expresses that faith that works is going to share with a fellow brother or sister in need who has a clothing or daily food. You don't just say, well, I'll pray for you. God bless you. Go forth and, you know, be, be warm, be filled. That would be hypocritical on our part if we have the means to help them to be warm and be filled. And then, but in these verses, 4 through 6, James condemns them, condemns the rich for three specific actions that reflect a willful refusal to share with those in need. First in verse 4, James charges uh, the, the rich here with the fact that they had cheated their neighbor. You cheated your neighbor. You, don't, you have not shared your riches. In fact, you've cheated your neighbors. You've defrauded your neighbors. Verse 4, we read, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. James condemns the wealthy landowners who had withheld the pay of their laborers. And in their economy in those days, there were many wealthy landowners. Um, and on those, they would grow, you know, vineyards or, or far, farms and crops on those fields. And in order, and when the harvest comes, they would hire laborers. Much like people go out and hire day laborers today, they would hire day laborers that would come to, do the, to reap the harvest. But in those days, too, uh, just as reflected in the parable of the, of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, a laborer would, uh, a landowner goes out after hiring his laborers would agree to pay them a certain price, 
But then, and at the end of the day, then, he would basically call, you know, have the laborers come up, and then he would pay them, pay them what he had promised. And such was a common scenario in those days. But there were some landowners, James points out, who were withholding the pay of the laborers. That doesn't tell us why, but whatever the reason, it was undoubtedly a selfish, greedy reason. They were keeping their days later. So maybe they were saying, well, oh, I'll pay you tomorrow. I'll pay you tomorrow. Or I'll pay you two weeks from now. Or I'll pay you on a month-to-month basis. Oh, we get paid that way. But we have more means. But for, can you, and according to God's law in those days, this was a violation of God's law. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14 to 15, we read these words. Moses warns Israel in this way, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it become sin to you, in you. See, in a world where most of the laborers were poor. I mean, that's why they're waiting. They're day laborers. They don't have a regular job. They're just depending upon the harvest time. And they don't have a savings account, much like that's why most of us get paid every other week or once a month or uh, on an you know, extended basis because we have means. But the poor are not like that. Can you imagine you go hire a poor person right now today who just have nothing, but you say, well, come back in two weeks. I want you to do two weeks of work, and I'll, come, I'll pay you at the end. What are they going to do for food in the meantime? Where are they going to go buy their food at the end of the day? Where are they going to provide food for their children or their, or their wife that's waiting at home because they waited in front of you know, Lowe's or Home Depot for, to work, and now they're going to come home because, well, the man said, I'll pay you in two weeks. And that's what these people were doing. They were not paying their laborers, And so the poor, the workers, they worked all day. They deserved to eat, but they go home empty-handed, and they're hungry, and their children hunger, and their family hunger. What's more, the laborer, since he's poor, he has no recourse. He can't say, go to anybody and say, well, look, this person's doing this to me. This is a wealthy person. Wealthy person had all the power. And so they, all they could do is cry out to the Lord. But, there, but that is, there is something significant in that. Because it tells us here that they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord hears their cry. This is not a God who doesn't hear it's not just a God who's just a little idol on a you know, stand who doesn't really exist, who doesn't hear the prayers of, his, of the, his worshipers. This is the Lord of Sabaoth, even, he points out. The Lord of Sabaoth uh, is a word that means the Lord of hosts. It means the hosts of armies, the armies of angels that God has at his disposal. The very one, and it's a picture of judgment again, the Lord of hosts. He's, his judgment will come through his angels. All his angels are at his disposal to judge and here, when you're rich and you, when you withhold money from those or defraud those who are your laborers, the poor among you, keeping money from them, with keeping it in your pocket so that you can get rich and, then say, you know, and not giving them what they need, then their prayers, their cries to God is being heard. And the Lord of hosts is going to come and judge you is the implication. Now, well, this setting doesn't take place. This kind of situation doesn't really take place in our day too often. But I think if we, in our day, we could apply it to some extent to 
even as we think about our world. And we, may, we could apply it even to, this charge could apply to those who are our corporate executives and CEOs and uh, the wealthy business owners of our world who cheat their workers. I know sometimes in our world today, it's, I just shake my head because executives and CEOs who successfully trim, you know, employees, who tighten budgets, reduce benefits for the bottom line of their company while thousands lose their jobs. Is that not a picture of this, what we see in the scriptures? Used to be in the day when CEOs, executives, business owners would think of their, their place and their position as in, in, in authority, and they would see it as their responsibility and their charge, their stewardship to look out for the employees, their families that work underneath them. They would want to care for them as if they were their own family. It's a profound thought. I think it's something for, though if any of us are in those positions to make that change, we should do so. Well, the second charge that James labels, brings against the rich that reflects their willful refusal to share with those in need is found in verse 5. Is that not only did you cheat your neighbors, he says, but you indulge your selfish pleasures. Instead of sharing your wealth with those who are poor in need, you just indulge your selfish pleasures, verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of want and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The wages that the rich were withholding from their labors instead were spent on themselves, James says. They lived a life of luxury. They were... They, they lived a life of self-indulgence. In James chapter 4, he had warned us of the danger of our selfish pleasures that cause and lead to conflicts and wars among us for which we murder and steal from one another. We see this kind of behavior condemned throughout the Bible. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, when describing one of Sodom's sins, it was that they had abundant food and careless ease, but... She did not help the poor and needy. In 1 Timothy 5 or 6, widows who live for wanton pleasure are not allowed upon the list that the church of, of people whom the church would support. In the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, verse 16 and 21, who stored up his treasures and, and, found, and basically boasted in his riches, felt, himself, felt that he was secure, that he could take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But yet he would God would that night demand his soul. Jesus said of him in verse 21 of Luke 12, so is the man who stores a treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The implication is that we are to be rich toward God. And how are we to be rich toward God? Well, God's in heaven. Well, when we are rich towards the least of these, Jesus would say. See, the storing up of earthly treasures purely for one's own personal pleasures is a selfish and wrong. We understand this. We teach our children not to do this. But we tend to do this. Or maybe it's just me. But I think we tend to do this. Instead, our earthly treasures ought to be used for God's pleasure, not our pleasure. And what is God's pleasure? Part of God's pleasure is that 
he would see his people enjoy the fruits of the labor. God created this whole world for mankind to enjoy. He creates for us to, to work and to, to gain food from it, to delight in that food, delight in that meat, delight in all that this world does have to offer. And that is a part of the joy that brings pleasure to God, to provide for your family's needs. But part of his pleasure also is that we might serve God through meeting the needs of others. When we share of our riches with others, it is a picture of how God has shared his riches so abundantly with us. Because we are the neediest of all people. And God gives it to us, all these things. Those who use the riches for only for themselves in this life, James says, are fattening themselves, fattening your hearts in a day of slaughter. Again, it's a picture. This is a picture of, of you know, animals that were fattened for the slaughter. It's, again, a picture of judgment. Judgment is coming if you are one who is just simply indulging in your riches, in your selfish pleasures. Hopefully, we would look at our lives and say, no, we are actually using our, the, the, the riches that God has given us, and we're using it to share with others, to serve God, to be rich toward God, remind ourselves that we are stewards of what God has given to us. What we do with our riches is something that we will give all give an answer to God for. Think of the parable of the mites. Lastly, in verse 6, uh, there's one more condemnation, one more judgment, and that is the rich who refused, of the rich who refuse to share the riches. They will do whatever it takes to keep the riches and even to gain more riches. And James charges them with the fact that they, you have oppressed the righteous that you've, you've not only defrauded them, not only have used the money on yourself, but then you oppress the righteous. Verse 6, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. Some uh, commentators, interpreters, have seen in here a, ver a reference to the crucifixion of Christ because uh, the righteous there is, is in the singular, masculine, uh, is singular. And so they say the righteous person, and they think, oh, that must refer to Christ. But it is generally more widely accepted that this is, a state, this is a taking to apply a general statement of the oppression of righteous people, the righteous people as a class, as a single class of people, that the rich have condemned and put to, de put to death all the righteous people. The word condemning recalls back to chapter 2, verse 6, of where the rich who oppress and personally drag Christians into courts. They were, the rich were using uh, their power in those days, and they had power, and this, even as rich today have power, to drag people to court. We've already mentioned it. You have to have a little bit of money in order to, you know, go to court, generally speaking. Perhaps uh, it was to make the poor pay for money that was owed to them. Uh, we don't know, just that simply that they took people to court. This idea, the second idea, not only you condemn them, but you put them to death, may be reflected in this idea where they were put into prison, taken to courts, found that they owed money, and then put into prison until they would pay back what they owed. But the fact that they were poor means that, and they're not working, means that they couldn't pay back what they owed. And so, in effect, they would die in prison. You put them to death. And it's not just them, but then 
any families that they were, their families that they supported. It could also here just simply be uh, kind of a, the effect of their condemnation, the effect that they were withholding money was affecting the way, withholding wages led to then to the starvation of the poor. But in, whatever, in either case, it evidences the cruelty of these rich, their lack of compassion, their lack of love for their neighbor, that even though they don't have the means to pay, they would take them to court, condemn them, oppress them. The last phrase, he does not resist you, can be translated and interpreted in, in two, two, kind of, two ways. There are several other ways, but two main ways. One is that he does not resist you, as in the NAS and most of our English translations uh, speak to. That is that the poor are not able to resist, and it makes your, your oppression of them even worse if you are oppressing the, the poor. However, it is also possible to translate this, this phrase, he does not resist you, as a question. Uh, does he not resist you? So we can see it as a statement, he does not resist you. Or a question, does he not resist you? It's, both are allowed. Both are grammatically allowed by the original language. So when we, and I'm going to take a minority view here, that is, I believe, and with a few scholars, that it's really a question of the latter. Why is this so? It's because in verse 5 to 6, all the tenses, the Greek tenses are the same. Okay? I don't want to get too technical, but all the Greek tenses are the same, except for this one, except for this one, this last phrase, resist you. Uh, by the way, this word resist could also mean oppose. And if we were looking through this, it would, we would expect that the tenses would remain the same if they're all talking about the same situation. It's kind of flowing. In the, he, he, you condemn them. You condemn and oppress them. Uh, you mur- put them to death. And then he does not oppose you. Uh, we expect them all to be the same. But the fact is, this is in a different tense. It's in the present tense, in fact. So what is significant, not only on top of the fact that there's an abrupt change in tense, but when we look for this verb, we look at this, this, this word, and we look at the tense, we find it in only a few other places in scriptures, three, two other places in scriptures. And one of them we just saw in chapter 4, verse 6. And in chapter 4, verse 6, we read there that God is opposed to the proud and give, but gives grace to the humble. That is our same exact word in the same exact tense, the same exact number and, and, and gender. And think about the flow of what we've seen here. Since that passage where God, where James says, God is opposed to the proud. God resists the proud. There's no way we could translate it. James has, what has he done? He's rebuked those who have made themselves to be judges in verses 11, chapter 4, 11 to 12. He's rebuked those who have presumptuously made plans in verse 13 to 17. Now he has condemned those who boast in their riches in chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. All these are sins of whom? They characterize the proud. They, correct, they characterize those who boast in the, in, in life, in the prideful boasting of life. It, is people, it is, reflects the, the attitudes of, I think I'm better than you, and that's why I judge you. I'm the master of my life, that's why I make my plans. I am secure because I'm rich. These are the attitudes of those who are proud. 
and God is opposed to the proud. And I think just as we come through, the, James is intending here, as we come to the very end, he's listed all these charges against the rich. He says, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this. And then he quotes 4.6, God is opposed to you. He's actually, does he not oppose you, rhetorically speaking? And the answer is, yes. Yes, he does oppose the proud, the rich, who boast in themselves and their riches. He, the one who is the Lord of hosts, opposes you. And if the Lord of hosts opposes you, and if you fear God, then you ought to repent. You ought to turn away and stop putting your security in your riches and stop refusing to share your riches with others, but instead to do the right thing. For you who know the right thing to do and do not do it, it is sin. The truth is, God is opposed to these rich oppressors. You have condemned and murdered the poor. Does he not oppose you? And this, all of this whole passage serves really, it serves kind of a main a purpose. Sometimes it's not about uh, the authorial intent sometimes of a passage. The truth is that even though God is opposed to rich oppressors and the response is to repent, but the intent of this, even for, because he's writing to believers, and these are probably, most likely, these rich were unbelievers, though they profess faith in Christ. But the primary emphasis here is really to be a source of comfort to those who are poor a comfort to those believers. Because these believers were poor and they were being oppressed. They were being taken to prison. They were being uh, uh, deprived of their, la- of their wages. And God intends for them to find comfort in this. I think of today sometimes, how have the rich oppressed the poor? And I think in our day, especially among our young, and then some of you are in that, in that very same position, is that there has been this huge industry. I think about how people are, uh, many of our student college students have been falsely led to take out huge loans and to pay for university degrees that basically have zero worth. They've been defrauded by these rich who basically they default and they, I just read one college, they just kind of declared bankruptcy, but I can guarantee you those, those, uh, those executives, those companies are, are not poor. They've not lost their money. They have plenty of money, but those, those students who have, and as many of you are there, are left with this you know, a piece of paper that's a good degree, but an, a, an IOU that is in the hundreds, probably in the six figures, and you have no way to pay. And you feel upset, probably. But know that God says, those who have rich, who have oppressed you and condemned you, their judgment is coming. Their judgment is coming. May that be a comfort to you. And then we're going to make a fit when we look at verse 7 to 8. Therefore, be patient. Therefore, be patient, because God is opposed to them, but he gives grace to the humble. James, as we conclude then, has warned the rich of their impending judgment by God. They've sought, because they've sought security in their riches, and they have refused to share their riches with the needy. But God's word makes clear that we are to be people who find security in him, in Christ, not in our riches, in people who share with those who have need. And this is best, I feel, I mean, 
is best reflected in a passage that Paul writes to young Timothy in 1 Timothy verse 16 to 17, 6, 17, 19. I want to just end with this verse because I think it just summarizes what we are called to do. It's not just we see it here in James, but we see it in Paul in 1 Timothy. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. See, don't find security in riches. Find security in God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That's our responsibility if we are, have means. Storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future. Not storing up treasures for earth, but storing up treasures in heaven so that we may take hold of the life, that which is life indeed. Again, we can come back to what Christ said to the young, rich young ruler. It fits in even with what James writes, with Paul writes, that if we want to take hold of life indeed, if we want to take hold of them, we need to be followers of Christ. We need to be willing to submit ourselves, whatever idols we have, and especially most of us, for us, most of us our idols are our, rich, our riches. Submit them all to the Lord. Be willing to, be willing to sell them all if need be. But let us be people who don't fix our hope on the riches that God gives us. He does give it to us to enjoy. But then at the same, and at the same time, let us use these riches to be rich toward God, to store up treasure, to use it for the kingdom, to use it to help others, to use it to minister to the poor and needy. And that will reflect the genuineness of our faith in Christ, a faith that is a saving faith, a faith that works. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for our time. We pray that you would glorify yourself through our lives as we, as we examine how we use our riches, Lord. Help us not to, to give in to the, the temptation to find security in our riches or to even and to hold it to ourselves and not be willing to share. Father, cause us to be, learn to be generous as you are generous with our riches, to share with those who have need. Father, help us even as those who have the means to even on a grander scale to speak up for those who are being oppressed by those who are rich, speaking up for those who have no voice, the poor, the needy, the helpless of our world. And this we pray, that Christ might be magnified, that your character might be made manifest in our lives, that we would be people who love you and love our neighbors as ourselves, reflecting a genuine faith that works. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.